Good morning. Welcome to Northminster Church this morning, whether you're in person or online. We are grateful for your presence with us today. I want to say a special word of welcome to any of you who are visiting with us. We are particularly honored by your presence. We are glad that you are here and hope that you will participate in all aspects of our worship service, including communion. Uh, if you are new with us and you don't quite know how communion works, there's an explanation in your order of worship. Or you can just follow the folks around you who look like they know what they're doing. Get in line with them. They won't let you down. I want to say a couple quick things about our service this morning. Um, well, first, before I do, please do pass the worship, worship registries down your row. Fill those out so we know who is here. Names, pictures, whatever the Spirit leads you to is just fine. Uh, you'll also notice the beautiful flowers this morning. Um, Eric and I gave those in honor and loving memory of our daughter who passed away today two years ago. Uh, so we hope that you will take those with you today. Let them brighten your day. That was our, our goal, and they are gorgeous. Marilyn, are these your handiwork? Robert. Robert. So, of course, they are beautiful. Do please take them today. Uh, let them lighten up your week. Let them be a bright spot for you. They are beautiful. A couple of notes about our service this morning uh, as you look at your order of worship. The first is that our Psalter or Psalm reading will be sung. You will see that on the first page, inside page of the order of worship. Uh, if you're unclear as to how that will work, Debbie is going to lead us through it. Don't panic. And then as we go a little further on, you will see on the back page, our last hymn, we will sing stanzas one, two, and four. So if you sing any other verses, you're singing a solo. Also, I will give you more information as we get there, but you will notice that during our sermon time, uh, all three of us uh, ministers who are up here on the platform will be preaching this morning. Um, I'll explain that a bit when we get there, but I am grateful for the contribution and work of my colleagues today. And now, I think that is everything. Uh, do look on the insert to your order of worship for upcoming events and announcements, including for Sunday lunch today. Um, but with that said, let's take a deep breath together. We take this deep breath to settle ourselves, to let our bodies and our minds catch up with one another. Um, we often live in autopilot. We're so busy. We have so many things going on. We don't always take the time to be as aware of ourselves and each other and our, and our surroundings as we should be. So take a deep breath. Let that breath not only fill your lungs, let it calm your mind and quiet your heart. As you breathe in, breathe in the joy of being in this good, safe, loving space. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list. Breathe out the homework that might not be done. Breathe out those things that would distract you. And then let us worship God together by reading together our call to worship. At night, when our cries for help echo off our walls, you hear us. Each day, as our fears push us closer to the edge of loneliness, every time we stumble over our efforts to be perfect,
and did not let my grief overtake me. In the long dark night of my soul, I cried for you, and you heard my voice. Weeping lasts for the night, but together. Holy and merciful God, your scriptures tell us that weeping may come for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Yet how long is this night, O Lord? How long will this dark night of the soul be? We have no explanation for what brings us here tonight. We can do nothing else that endures in this deepest and most painful of mysteries. But we believe in you, the creator of heaven and earth and the embodiment of your love, Jesus Christ. And yet even with this belief, we are often at a loss when moments of sorrow happen. We cannot explain or understand why you would allow these things to happen to us. And when we hear attempted justifications, they do not solve the mystery or take away the pain. They say that a true friend is one who is willing to tell you the truth. Our truth is a question to which we do not know the answer. Our question is this, why God? Why? Why do you allow bad things to happen? Why do you allow us to be wounded? Like Israel, we cannot simply put our tragedy behind us, but we have to tell the story of when it happened, where it happened, how it happened. You know this darkness, Lord, for you allowed it to have its way with you on the cross. You prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that it might not be so, and yet you faced it. Lord Christ, you know our suffering deeper than we know it. You rose from the dead, but you still carried your wounds. 
You asked Thomas to come and touch them so that he might believe. Can you teach us how to bear our wounds? We do not want our pain to close us off from you or from others any longer. Your presence is the thing that sustains us. And so allow us to be present to you in our pain. Your strength was shown in weakness, and so we come to you in our weakness. And so our weeping stays for the night, but may joy come in the morning. Death and destruction come for us all. We cannot deny them or the wounds they have left. But we shall not let them have the last word, because you did not let them have the last word. In this and in you, we have our hope. Amen.
A reading from 2 Corinthians. The God who spoke light into existence, saying, Let light shine from the darkness, is the very one who sets our hearts ablaze to shed light on the knowledge of God's glory revealed in the face of Jesus, the Anointed One. But this beautiful treasure is contained in us, cracked pots made of earth and clay, so that the transcendent character of this power will clearly seen will be clearly seen as coming from God and not from us. We are cracked and chipped from our afflictions on all sides, but we are not crushed by them. We are bewildered at times, but we do not give in to despair. We are persecuted, but we have not been abandoned. We have been knocked down, but we have not been destroyed. We have been, we are always, we always carry, we have always carry our body, around in our bodies, the reality of the brutal death and suffering of Jesus. As a result, his resurrection life rises and reveals its wondrous power in our bodies as well. For while we live, we are constantly handed over to death on account of Jesus, so that his life may be revealed even in our mortal bodies of flesh. So death is constantly at work in us, but life is working in you. We share the same spirit of faith as the one who wrote the psalm, I believed. Therefore, I spoke. We also believe, and that belief leads us to acknowledge that the same God who resurrected the Lord Jesus will raise us together with Jesus and will usher us all into the divine. A reminder that though we may be cracked and chipped, God does not leave us to be crushed. Thanks be to God. In just a moment, D.H. and then Debbie and then I will come and, and share as part of this uh, three-part sermon. Um, but I, I wanted to make sure it was clear, if you hadn't read our newsletter this week, this entire service is a bit out of the ordinary. Um, this is a, a tough day in mine and Eric's little world. And thankfully, I have colleagues who are willing to come alongside me and not only help me get through this day, um, but to allow us in this shared worship space to have an honest conversation about grief, about loss, about those sorts of things that, as Carol Ann said, we don't usually talk about. Uh, the goal is not to be maudlin or overly sad or to make anybody feel bad, but to present to you three ministers, professional Christians, if you will, <laughs> who have all had life experiences like each of you because the promise of Christ is not that we're not going to suffer it's that we're not going to be alone in that suffering so I wanted to give you a little bit of that background I am incredibly grateful for DH and for Debbie uh, this was actually Debbie's idea to share the sermon time so all the credit goes to her 
Um, they're going to come and share with you, and um, I think we can all look forward to what they have to say. So, DH? Well, I'm not going to share with you any personal stories today. If you want me to do that a little later, I'd be happy to. Uh, let's suffice it to say going forward that uh, we've all suffered bad things in our lives and we've certainly had friends, family, and those whom we love to suffer in such bad way. So I just wanted to talk a little bit today about the subject and as I was thinking about what I wanted to say today, uh, a, a title or a phrase kept coming to mind and it was if love would only let me go. Love is perhaps God's greatest gift to humankind and God's very essence. It has immeasurable power, both in the universe as well as within each of our souls. But ask the question, is it always our nature to desire to be under the sway of that power or of such a powerful force 24-7? I want you to think about that for a second. Most, if not all, of the painful experiences of life, those of such immense impact that they cause us to lose God and flail about asking, Oh God, why have you forsaken me? Oh God, where are you? These are really a direct offshoot of love. Grief is an inexorable inexorably tied to love. If we don't love, we don't grieve. We grieve because we have loved. When this pain seems unbearable, we might well ask love to let us go, just so we can find some ease and peace in that time. This is such a moment that St. John of the Cross, a medieval Spanish mystic, had when he penned the poem Dark Night of the Soul, upon which uh, at least part of our Psalter was based today. Thought perhaps to have been imprisoned at the time in Toledo, Spain, he found himself separated from God. For whatever reason, he was suffering, and he had suffered a complete spiritual drought. As expressed in his poetry, John found his way back to God through love. The final stanza goes like this. Uh, As I remained lost in oblivion, my face I reclined on my beloved. All ceased and I abandoned myself, leaving my cares among the lilies. The deep abiding love of our beloved, our loving God, is what waits us in the morning of those long, long, long dark. Oftentimes it is the same love that we sense we have lost that sends us into that night so long that we might well wish love to let us go just to end our pain. The Reverend George Matheson, a 19th century Scottish minister, experienced such a time of suffering, the cause of which he shared with no one, uh, think possibly pastoral burnout of some kind. It was a pain so deep that he did not want to burden his congregation nor anyone else with it. How many times have you felt like that? 
your sadness you feel might be infectious and you don't want to share it with anybody. He did ultimately find his way back to love. And in that journey, he was inspired to write a hymn that the choir will sing a setting of in a little bit. He wrote this inspirational piece in about five minutes and it's entitled, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. We share his path to healing when we understand that God's love does not let us go. Part of that journey begins with ridding ourselves of our long-held theodicy. That is the theological problem of trying to explain why bad things happen in a world under God's loving control. What is God's purpose in our suffering? Jillian alluded to that eloquently in her prayer. And how many times have we asked that question? And how many times have we been told in such a time, oh well, it's God's plan, just wait, it'll all turn out fine in the end. <clears throat> Rabbi Harold Kushner in his famous book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, tells us that his beliefs about God changed over time from this theodicy to a, a time in his life when he was able to make the statement, let me suggest that bad things that happen to us do not have a meaning. God does not magically alter forces of nature either as reward or punishment. Events so unendurable as the loss of a child never were and never will be part of quote unquote God's plan. But God stands there beside us, holding us up in strong, loving arms when we cannot stand on our own, weeping with us in grief, and granting us the grace to live into life's fullness with the weight of our pain shared by our loving family of faith. God's love manifest in the here and now. God's love that will not let us go and should not. The love which surrounds us, God's family, becomes the field of lilies among which we scatter our griefs. We who suffer must be willing to leave our cares among the lilies and share it. And the lilies, God's loving family, must bloom we must make love palpable to those who suffer. We are God's way of showing the true power of love. Thank you, God. Thank you, love, for not letting us go. I'm going to veer off the scripture just for a moment today and look at the book of Job. It's not a happy book. Job is a story of a man who struggles through a very, very grieving experience many times. It is also a story of a man who learned to trust God without receiving all or any answers. For in the end, Job was never let in on what we have known from the beginning of the drama, the Christ. He was never let in for the reason behind all his catastrophes. 
God never told Job it was a harsh testing to see if he would emerge from his faith and come out of it still trusting God. But Job did. He emerged with his faith and his trust in God stronger than ever. That was enough. Job had learned to trust without receiving answers. Man, that goes against my grain. I need answers. But you know, that is the meaning of faith. Faith is only faith when we cannot see or understand. But we believe and we trust anyway. And only when our faith has been tested can we know it is real and not just imagined or read about or hoped for. That it is the way we feel. It is not so much that in my life that I've learned a lesson. Rather, I think it is that my testing is changing and making me into someone I was not before. That's a very hard realization for someone my age to be changing. I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not used to it. I really don't know everything yet. I thought I did. Our lives, whether they are short or long, come with challenges, hurts, trials, tribulations, life, death. And it may be the death of the spirit, not actual dying, even though sometimes it feels like it. Sometimes you feel that that is what's happening. But you are dying inside. It can feel that way. It hurts. But as Christians, we're supposed to have hope. And we know the ending of the story, but that doesn't take the pain away. We wish to believe that light will shine in the darkness, and we may be crushed, but should not have despair. Or so that's what the Corinthians passage told us this morning. We also have been taught that our lives may be crushed or cracked, but God does not leave us. How many times have all of us had a heartache or fear and we cried out, as D.H. said, I feel this so many times, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Why don't I feel you right now? Take this away. Jesus screamed that from the cross. And it is a comfort to me that know our companion our Savior cried that out before his death. And he died anyway. Well, most of us have lived long enough to know that life does not always go as we planned or even we dreamed about. It hardly looks the way we first envisioned that it would look. But we've lived long enough to know that's life. Life is usually what happens just when we're planning something else. The rug is pulled out from under us. We do not have some magic Christian pill to take. But as we've learned over the years, happiness and joy are two different things. Life moves at its own pace, which is usually faster and sometimes slower than we would like it to. It moves in its own direction, 
which is often not the direction in which we find ourselves going. It opens up when you least expect it, and it shuts us down in the most inopportune times. And it gives us no reason for it. Life loves you and then leaves you high and dry. But the saying goes, and I've read this several times and I love this, I will be at peace when I choose to be at peace. It's a choice. And there's going back to the happiness and joy. Joy is deep down. Happiness comes and goes. We must decide for ourselves which it will be. Will we choose peace or not? We have to choose to dance even if we have two left feet like me. We have to see the good in our lives instead of dwelling on all the disappointments. And we've all had many. And they're not over. That's the hard realization. You and me, we are not alone, though. Look at us. Our friends, our family are all around us. And this place called Northminster may be the closest thing to family and friends some of us have. So we lean on the everlasting arms of each other. We come together week after week for some reason. And it may just be to check on one another, check on our family, have a family reunion. We share a common spirit. It's what we do on Sundays. And we know we have each other for support the rest of the week as well. And as we keep going back to, and you helped me sing a little while ago, the psalm says, joy cometh in the mornings. Well, dear one, I have to hold on to this. And I truly pray you will too. For joy will come. Maybe in the morning. Amen. The thing that <clears throat> struck me the most in the immediate aftermath of losing our child was the sadness. And even as I say that, it seems like such a simple, small word. It's too simple to describe those first few weeks, but it's absolutely right. I was debilitatingly sad. So sad I couldn't think of what to do with my body that felt alien and broken. So sad that I couldn't figure out if I was hungry or tired. So sad that had I been left to my own devices, I would have just laid down in bed and, and just not moved. But choices did get made in those first few awful days. Thank God Eric was there because he took on most of the heavy lifting for both of us. I did manage to participate in some of the things happening around me. I remember we had to talk to the funeral home. I talked to my church moderator about who was going to fill in for me at church, because, you know, church doesn't stop for the next few weeks. Talked to Eric about getting out of our house that held so many memories, at least for a few days. I know I spoke and I moved and I did things, but looking back, I have no idea how. 
because there at the edges of everything was the sadness. Not threatening, not scary, just waiting. Waiting to envelop me. I know that I scared Eric in the weeks after we lost Tegan when I told him that I'd be okay if I just didn't wake up. I wasn't suicidal. I didn't want to hurt myself. I was just okay if the good Lord decided to take me home. My world was now split in two. There was life before Tegan, and there was life after. Sorry. Thank you. And in my grieving, I've come to understand that I have to grieve both the loss of my child and the person that I was going to become as her mother. Eric and I had to grieve the life we lost and that we'd started to imagine with our daughter. Silly arguments about how too young, how, how young is too young for your first Notre Dame game. <laughs> he said probably about nine months and I said I think she might need to be a little older. <laughs> arguments about what we do if she came home and said she wanted to be a cheerleader. <laughs> I was in the band, he was an athlete, cheerleading is not, does not run in our family. <laughs> we wondered if Tegan would get my love of school and reading or Eric's athletic ability. We were both hoping for our own side. We also both hoped that she would not get my nose or Eric's cowlick. <laughs> the bitterness of having so many hopes and dreams wrenched away in just a matter of hours was a side effect of loss that neither of us saw coming. Beyond the tangible elements of coming home from the hospital without our baby, I think this decimation of plans and dreams and hopes is what has lingered the longest and been most painful. After three weeks, I went back to work. Uh, again, church doesn't stop. And it wasn't because I was ready, but at some point, you just have to rip off that particular Band-Aid. My, my folks at church were exceedingly patient and kind, but I know that my work suffered. I go back and read my sermons from that time, and they're coherent, but I don't have any memory of, of writing them. My music director and our wonderful, wonderful church secretary, which if you're willing to be a church secretary, you're a special person, <laughs> but they kept me afloat. They kept the church afloat during that time. Thankfully, and this is not something I ever thought I would say, thankfully it was still COVID times, and I didn't really have to make pastoral care visits, which was good, because I would have just sat in people's homes and did this. I was able to contact people with cards and phone calls and text messages, and, and life kept moving. 
Because that's the really obnoxious thing about grief. The world around you doesn't stop. Your world has changed. You are forever changed, but everything else keeps plugging along. Most people are blissfully unaware that you are just a husk of your old self. Eventually, the days of not being able to get out of bed became fewer. I wasn't crying every day, and with the help of a good family friend, all the nursery furniture we had been gifted, but thankfully had not put to, been put together yet, that all got moved down to the basement. So we were able to use our dining room again. And somewhere in there, I adopted a more or less fake-it-till-you-make-it approach to God and church and belief and faith in general. I never lost my faith. I never doubted God's existence, in part because figuring out an alternative was energy I didn't have. And to be honest, believing in God gave me someone to be angry with other than myself. There were days that I screamed and raged and cried to God, begging to know why my child was taken, pleading to be told what I'd done wrong. I still have those days every once in a while. But it occurred to me pretty early on that Tegan is fine. She's not hurting or unhappy or unsafe. That child, as all children are, was a gift from God. So when she left us, She simply returned home to God, safe in the heart of the one who created her to begin with. I wouldn't trade any day of being her mom, even with the pain of separation. So that means that I can live with the knowledge that my baby is okay. I have to figure out how to live here without her. And that's where the faking it comes in. On the days that the sadness reaches out, or I'm feeling particularly angry with God, I do my best to keep plugging along. Working, spending time with y'all, writing sermons, reading books. Thankfully, those really hard days have become uncommon. But when they do come up, this fake it till you make it approach works pretty well. Now, if you and I have contact on one of these days, my hope is you won't know it. I want to be clear that even if I am in one of these kind of faking it sorts of of days, it doesn't make our interactions insincere or any less genuine. It's not that I enjoy your company less on those days. It's more than I'm using my little coping strategy to stay in the work, to stay grounded, to remain in the knowledge that my only is my child in the very heart of God, I am too. Now, as a way of bringing this rather nebulous collection of words to an end and hopefully stop crying, um, I want to tell you about an unlikely interview that I have watched many times since discovering it. It's a conversation between Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert from a few years ago, right after Anderson's mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, passed away. Um, You can find it on YouTube. It's about 20 minutes. Please, please go home and watch it. It is so beautiful. And Anderson mentions that after his mother passed, uh, Stephen Colbert wrote him a note. 
And then they go on to have this raw and tender conversation about grief. It is so special. I could probably quote most of the interview to you. I've watched it so many times, but I continue to be most struck by something Stephen Colbert says. Uh, Stephen Colbert is a committed Catholic. Uh, you probably knew that, but you might not know is that he is the youngest of 11 children. And when he was 10 years old, his father and two closest brothers in age were killed in a plane crash. And then later on, after his mother died, she lived to be 92, uh, Stephen inherited her crucifix. And he talks about his mother praying to Our Lady. And he says she would pray to Our Lady because, his mother said, she knows what it is to lose a child. Of course, in our tradition, Protestant traditions of, of all kinds, we don't pray to Mary so much. But the same knowledge holds true. God knows what it is to lose a child, to lose part of God's self. God is a parent who's gone through the pain of a child's dying and then brought that child back to God's center, back to God's heart where my child also exists. Now, I don't know exactly how that works. I, I'm not sure exactly what such an arrangement looks like, nor when I will also get to be part of that sort of existence. But I am comforted in the knowledge that God knows my pain firsthand. God is part of this terrible club of parents who've lost children. God knows the anger, the unfairness, the debilitating sadness. And yet God chooses love. God chooses to embrace. And God chooses each and every one of us.